Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome, everyone. On today's podcast, we have the former founder and chairman of Seatwave, Joe Cohen. Today, he's walking the earth, but what that means, we're going to hear from him. Before that, I want to hear everything that led up to the creation of Seatwave and everything he's done ever since. One of the things that we love to do, Joe, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. And one of the things we like to do, as I was saying, is start with the beginning. Start with the very, very beginning, what you did right after college that got you into you know, your first job. Sure. So um, my college experience was somewhat unique in that uh, I attempted college six times, but didn't graduate, originally in Louisiana and then in Cleveland, Ohio, at Cleveland State. Uh, and I got, I don't know, about two-thirds of the way through and thought this wasn't really for me. I was at a point where um, college didn't really fit for me. So I ended up producing a documentary film. And the documentary film was about a guy who I knew who became a professional prize fighter at age 37 because he had spent 18 years in prison for rape and murder. And he had become an ordained minister while he was in prison. And in addition to being a professional prize fighter, Ohio middleweight champion, he was counseling young men whose children were on AFDC welfare on how to be better fathers. And I was really fascinated by this idea of how do you judge a life? He had done a terrible thing. He had admitted he had done a terrible thing, served his time, came out and was trying to do something different with his life. So I produced that documentary film and I moved from Cleveland, Ohio to Los Angeles to sell the documentary film and ended up getting a little bit of distribution on uh, public TV in the US for it. Met a bunch of people in the film industry who were all miserable so I realized that maybe that wasn't the right path for me. And I ended up getting a job at Disney working in the consumer products division. Um, they had a club for people who collect porcelain, Mickey Mouse's, Pecos Bill, other characters. And I was running database marketing and fulfillment for that club. Wow. So first of all, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you had started and you made your movie. How old were you when you did that? I was 25. 25. And... That I'm not sure what it means in, in sort of film parlance, but did, were you in charge of just you know bringing the capital together and getting it done, or were you involved in the filming, talent, and scripting, or everything? I did everything really? Yeah, I had one other person working with me. It was a pretty shoestring operation. I came up with the idea, brought people together, actually shot it myself, um, worked with somebody who did sound and editing. And once we had a finished product, I went out and tried to sell it. Wow. And, you know, I didn't know the story of, of what was the name of the character again? Wilson Honeyboy Smith. With Wilson, did you find that his story resonated something with you because there was some philosophical view you have that, that you just felt like you wanted to amplify through his story? Yeah, in, in some way, the story spoke to me. His story spoke to me because he had grown up, become a very good amateur fighter as a young man, was national Golden Gloves champion in the U.S. at 17, was picked to be on the U.S. Olympic team that would have gone to Moscow in 1980, but didn't mm. because of the boycott. And a year later was with a group of people that did something terrible, got caught, went to prison, readily admitted what he had done was terrible, um, and then tried to make something better of his life. And so we're always making judgments about people. And, you know, there's this expression, right? Uh, love the sin or hate the sin. And so that really has a strong resonance for me personally. And I think it was embodied by Wilson. Wow. And you think that in some ways that that's something that is in some ways the narrative of a founder. Like in, in some ways there's this uh, growth period and success period, but there's always going to be a period of, of challenge of critical decisions and, and, and challenging times. And, and either you come out the other end making the right call or the wrong call. I think so. I think, you know, as a founder, you get put into situations very much by yourself and you're very much unequipped to handle a lot of those situations or the decisions that you're faced with. 
and you try to figure out how to do the right thing. Mm. There's a lot, there's a lot of external pressures, yeah. a lot of internal pressures. Mm. And sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. Do you, would you be up for sharing maybe one story where you felt like that might've been a situation you were in when you were under any one of the things that you've done? I know that we haven't covered sort of yeah. the history of what, what you've done and we will, you know, hopefully following this, but is there any anecdote you'd be willing to share of a situation you felt like that was the case and you related to it firsthand? Well, gosh, I mean, it's not even on the same quantum, right? Yeah. But, you know, in, in my time at Seatwave, for example, you know, there's a prohibition in the UK against reselling football tickets. Mm. And there's a big business in reselling football tickets at the same time. And so we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what we could do, how we could do it, what was within the guidelines, what was outside the guidelines. And, you know, we were conscious about not wanting to be you know, getting into overt criminality, right? Um, but also not wanting to pass by a commercial opportunity. And in doing so, we actually tripped over the line to the wrong side, trying to be careful, but we did. And in the end, you know, if I look back on it, like the commercial benefit that we got out of it was nowhere near the complexity that created for the business, nowhere near... I would say like a moral failing of leadership on my part because I have to stand up in front of the company and say, we did this. It was wrong. My decision. Mm. And as a leader, that's something I would never want to do again. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you're looking forward towards it and you think there's going to be this great opportunity, if you can figure out how to do this thing and kind of shimmy it between, you know, being too close to the wind and over the line, in reality, those commercial opportunities don't tend to be as big as you might think they are sometimes. Yeah. And you overblow them in your mind. And, and frankly, I think it, it, it took me to a place where I'd much rather say, you know what? That's somebody else's business. Our yeah. business is over here, right, on the clean side. Mm. That's very good insight into maybe a way of thinking about it if a founder is in that situation. But maybe we'll come back and, yeah. and maybe share a couple of few other stories. So Disney and then, um, then you had a, a, a slew of other opportunities that you, you worked in, uh, including cathode ray and city search. Maybe if you want to touch on a few of them before you, you know, you end up at Ticketmaster. Sure. So cathode ray was my own company. Um, I, I had been at Disney in, uh, Southern California at the same time I had become friends with a bunch of guys up in Santa Cruz who were working on kind of the very first beta versions of Netscape kind of post-mosaic. This is like 94, 95. And I wrote a business plan for the Disney store to build a website. And I pitched it to my boss at Disney. And she kind of patted me on the head and told me to go back to my desk and do my fucking job and get away from her. Um, and every few weeks, I would kind of come back and be like, hey, Suzanne, remember this? And talk to her about it. And she'd ignore me. And uh, one day, it was the, I remember this, is burned in my mind. It was in June, hot, sunny day in June, Friday at 5 p.m. I get a call that Suzanne, who's the VP of the division, wants to see me in her office. And I'm thinking the only thing that happens Friday at 5, go to see the VP as you get in the sack. Mm. Right? And I walked in and she was there with the CFO of all Disney consumer products. And they said, how much money do you need for your website? And I said, well, the down payment's $175,000, but it's going to cost more after that. And they said, okay, you got it. And... I said, okay, thanks. And she then said, I have one question for you. I said, what's that? She said, are all these people who use the internet as strange as you? <laughs> and I said, yeah, but soon they won't be. And so we went and built the first website for the Disney store. And it's, I quickly realized that um, if I could do this with Disney, I could probably do it with other companies. So I resigned and I set up Cathode Ray. We built the first website for HBO a bunch of other film companies in LA, a number of biotech companies in San Diego, worked on a really interesting CD-ROM project for Cal State Bay in Monterey. Mm. They, were, they wanted to do a three-dimensional map of Monterey Bay for the aquarium um, and Ambari, so we worked on that for a little bit and a bunch of other really fascinating projects at the time. And um, it was great. And then one day I got a call from somebody I knew in New York who asked me if I ever heard of City Search. 
City Search was trying to do online yellow pages and timeout kind of content in one. Yeah. And they had just raised money from AT&T and Goldman Sachs. And I said, sure, I've heard of them. And they said, well, they need somebody to set up and run their website production. Do you want to go talk to them? And I thought, sure, what the hell, I'll go and have a chat with them. So I drove out to Pasadena, where they were based, La Crescenta, actually, and uh, walked into this room and there was like 35 people in, you know, 800 square feet. Um, there were fuses blown all over the place. It was, it looked like chaos. And they, you know, I met with the, one of the founders who was the CTO, Jeffrey Brewer, and Kristen Ding, who was the head of design. And they said they've got, you know, like 20 designers they hired from our college school of design to build websites for local merchants across the country. And they needed somebody to build a production facility to turn that into a production line. And I thought that would be a really interesting challenge on a bigger scale than I had been working. So I signed on to do it. And uh, the next 18 months, I worked 6 a.m. to midnight, seven days a week. Just cranking these things out. It was an insane period of time. We were building 300 websites a week, 300 websites a week um, for restaurants, bars, clothing stores. We were launching cities in, you know, San Francisco, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, Salt Lake City, all across the U.S. And um, it's insane. 300 a week. 300 a week. And so I'll tell you one quick story. Um, on my fourth day on the job, I didn't realize this, but I was responsible for making sure that the weather was updated on the website. On all of them? On all of them. Nice. When that was still a feature? When that was still a feature. I was responsible for it, or somebody who worked for me was responsible for it. There was a guy who came in at two in the morning, and uh, AccuWeather would FTP a file, and he would take the FTP and he would paste it into some HTML window and hit publish and then go home. And what I didn't realize, because I didn't even know he was doing it, was that the publication mechanism was broken. So I come in on my fourth day and um, somebody says, there's a guy in North Carolina trying to call you. I'm like, okay, great. And I get on the phone and and, uh, it's Ted Mizell, who uh, I worked with there, who's ended up running Overture and selling it to Yahoo. And Ted said, hey, Joe, you don't know me but I'm running business development for us. And uh, our website in Raleigh-Durham says that it's 80 and sunny today. I said, oh, right, that's cool. He said, well, there's a hurricane hitting Raleigh-Durham right now as we speak. I said, okay, we'll fix that. So I found somebody and we fixed it, got it done. And two minutes later, the chief exec of the company walked over to me and he said, hey, can I have a word with you? I said, sure. And he said, actually, you know what? He didn't walk over to me. I went to the men's and I was standing at the urinal and he came next to me at the next urinal and he said, you haven't met me yet. I'm Charles Kahn, the CEO. I understand you probably didn't realize that the weather was your job. But if it's broken again, it's a problem. And I said, not a problem anymore. And literally from then on for the next week, every night at 2 a.m. when the publication mechanism failed, I would call the CTO and wake him up and say, dude, I'm going to wake you up every night at 2 a.m. to fix this until it's fixed. And it took about a week and it got fixed. Nice. What, what led to the leap from City Search to Ticketmaster then? So City Search ended up getting bought by Barry Diller yeah. um, in 1998. And Barry Diller had just bought Ticketmaster previous to that. And what he did was, at the time, Ticketmaster was selling 4% of their tickets on the internet. He took Ticketmaster.com and ripped it out of Ticketmaster and merged it with City Search and floated the combined business. So we went from having this online yellow page business that was literally bleeding tens of millions of dollars to having the worldwide exclusive rights to sell Ticketmaster tickets on the internet overnight, which is a pretty good deal. Pretty good deal. And a few months after the, that deal got done, I got a call one day, hey, um, we don't have a Ticketmaster.com e-commerce business in the UK or Ireland. And we need somebody to go over and set it up and run it. Do you want to do that? Mm. And so I thought, what the hell? It'd be an interesting opportunity for 12 months. And 20 years later, here I am. Well, I mean, definitely the foundation for what will become the story of Seatwave, right? So 
there was a period there where you were at Match.com, and I just want to touch on that briefly because even though you know we're kind of coming up on the SeaWave story and the beginnings of it and some of the, the challenges it went through there, Match.com is slightly different um, insofar it's uh, its purpose and its and its sort of product and what it tries to do. Is there anything interesting that you'd like to highlight to the listeners around building a product where you have to build liquidity? You know, in this case, dating. It's like you need to fill both sides of the of the supply and demand curve. And how do you manage that? How do you how do you get one piped up before you can get the next one ready for for engagement? Do you want to maybe share a couple of anecdotes that you might have from those days? Sure. So Match is a little bit unique in marketplaces because in the early days of most marketplaces, you're trying to balance supply and demand so that it's almost like one is always kind of hopping on top of the other. Yeah. Right. Match was different because we were trying to build a category because online dating as a category didn't exist at the time. And the premise of match at that point was that it needed to be a clean, safe, well-lit place for women to find guys that they'd be interested in. Yeah. Not about hookups, not about anything else. Like that was it. So trust and safety was the number one priority in pretty much everything we were doing. How do we make this feel as comfortable, as safe for women as we possibly can? And so, you know, every single photo that got uploaded to the site was viewed by a person and like they had to click on it to approve it. We're talking about thousands every day, right? Every profile that someone wrote about themselves was reviewed by a person who had to review it, highlight it, approve it themselves. We had, you know, like literally contact centers of hundreds of people doing this. At the same time, we were using tech to help as well. So we were writing scripts for all kinds of different um, ways that people would try to say inappropriate stuff, provide contact information, everything else you might think about. We were working regularly with law enforcement in multiple jurisdictions on anything that might become unseemly um, or be a threat to anyone on the platform. So, you know, I think about kind of how platforms operate today under like Section 215 in the U.S., and that they, you know, they don't really have any um, kind of forward responsibility, right? Everything's reactive. Yeah. Whereas at that point, like we were just out in front of everything as much as we possibly could mm -hmm. because it wasn't about the regulation. It was about we were trying to build something that didn't exist. And we knew that trust had to be at the core of that. So trust is one part. In most marketplaces, if you don't have trust, it, it all falls apart. Look at the yeah. star ratings of eBay. But another... Another concept that I have noticed with, with marketplaces, and I don't know if this is the right terminology, it's the terminology I use, but I call it a liquidity ratio. And it, and to me, it means the distinction between the number of, let's say, a numerator versus a denominator, the numerator being the number of demand requests or supply requests relative to demand requests. And so I don't know what it was for match.com. I'll take a guess, right? Like if you look at um, certain nightclubs or if you look at any kind of social environment, you want to have more of one gender to attract another gender or vice versa. Um, and I, with C-Wave, I'd be also curious to find out the number of sort of listings and, and the premise behind it, especially with Match.com being the first in, in many ways. How, do you, how does a company that's building a marketplace figure out what the ideal ratio of one thing or let's say what the, what the demand to supply ratio is or what the supply to demand ratio is? and then optimize for that with their growth strategy. So it was a really, it was a delicate balance. It really was. And the way you do it is very much trial and error. Now, that's hard to do when you're trying to build trust at the same time because yeah. you, the errors push people away, Yeah. right? So you have to be very quick to understand what's a win, what's a loss, and how do you remediate it very quickly. So here's an example. In the early days of Match.com, there were in the U.S., about 100 women whose profiles were responsible for about 40% of men's subscriptions, kind of rainmakers, if you will, right? Super attractive women, got lots of guys to convert and become subscribers. Now, as a business match, that's great, right? And you would say, let's promote the profiles of those women. But the experience for them to get emails from like hundreds of guys who they have zero interest in is awful. 
It's absolutely awful. So what was we, it the same ratio for for men? No, no, not at all. What made women sign up? Feeling like it was a clean, safe, well lit place where they could like take control of the experience and go through and look at profiles and decide who they wanted to contact. Mm. That was really important for women. But for these, you know, like small number of women who were getting lots of contact, we worked on a whole bunch of different ideas. Like once your profile was viewed a certain number of times in a day, we would drop you out of the search table for a while, or we drop you further down the search table for a while, or we would cut off the number of messages you could receive each day. And so we were constantly iterating to try to figure out like, What's the right experience? Now, I also know because we did a lot of M&A that there are a lot of other dating businesses who were just being completely exploitive of those situations and saying, hey, if somebody generates subscriptions, I'm putting them at the top, I'm keeping it at the top. And even if they quit, I'm going to keep their profile at the top. And we saw a lot of that. But a lot of the work we did was trying to figure out like, what's the right balance? And there was never a fixed ratio. Mm. It was always a moving number. And we were always trying to figure out what's the right balance between the experience for somebody who is seeking someone and someone who is being sought. Mm. Okay. So I think we, we kind of touched on this theme because this is really relevant for SeaWave anyway, yeah. in terms of marketplaces and what drives them. But if you look at, we just talked about liquidity ratios. The other thing that sometimes marketplace founders are thinking about is how much to help somebody with increasing the likelihood of conversion. Like if you hear the story of how professional photography helped Airbnb yep. close more bookings. And it's a simple thing that the platform did to enable higher liquidity. And I'm curious as to what it was that came out as a big driver internally. What what tests you did to figure out what could be improved. I mean photography for the purposes of dating perhaps is a big one, but what other things and how did you go about thinking and structuring how to think through what a provider of a service or a buyer of a service would need to do to increase that trust? At match, specifically. Yeah, at match or, you know, we can jump straight and see with it. I think at match, way. on that point, we didn't do a great job, to be honest. Um, you know, we were trying to fill out more and allow people to fill out more and more profile information. So more detailed information about themselves. You know, ultimately, like, I don't know what your favorite color is. Does it really matter um, whether you like crunchy or creamy peanut butter, like stuff like that, that, you know, is almost irrelevant. But we were struggling a bit to try to figure out, like, what's the right amount of information. Now, at some point, kind of towards the later days I was at Match, we actually started creating variable profiles where you could actually choose which of the profile information or which sets of profile information you want to provide about yourself. Mm -hmm. So if I'm super into sports, there's a whole section on sports that I can include that somebody who wasn't could just ignore that and it wouldn't show up on their profile at all. I see. Right? So it was a little more personalized towards mm -hmm. different lifestyles as we had gotten further down the route of segmentation. Yeah. But in the early days, I don't think... We were, we were struggling to try to figure out what that was for a long time. And until we really understood our customer segments, we really didn't do a very good job of that. At SeatWave, it was a little bit of a different story because we went into it with on the premise that for any live event, there's really two extremes or two axes that people think about. Right? One is, what does it cost me to get in? And two is, where am I going to sit or stand? And at one end, you have somebody who says, I don't care what the price is. I want to sit row A, center seat. At the other end, you have somebody who says, what's the lowest possible price for me to be in the building? I'll stand in the toilet. I don't care. But I want to be there and I need the lowest possible price. The rep, all of us discriminate somewhere in between. So the challenge was really how do you get enough supply so that you can represent all those choices? And how do you get enough supply and build enough tools so that all that supply is in competition with one, one another? And that's really where we drove it. Because again, you know, the, the C-Wave model was you don't pay to list, right? We didn't make a penny unless a trade got completed. So for us, more trades happened at a lower price. So driving price down was a really important part of our business model. 
which was great for buyers. And ultimately for sellers, we felt like if you were trying to offload tickets at a lower price or a flat price, that's cool. And if you were a professional seller, then you could sell more tickets at a lower price, turn your money faster and get a higher yield over the course mm. of the year. Mm. All right. Well, let's, let's jump straight into the Seagway story then. Uh, 2006, you, you're within the confines of, of Ticketmaster um, experience and Match.com experience, and you decided to start Seatwave because... So I was thinking about... Um, I had been within this larger company. I joined City Search. It was 10 years later. It was still the same group of companies. I had seen it grown from this one company of 30 people to like a 20,000-person listed business. I wanted to go back and do something... From the beginning, I wanted to do it outside of a corporate environment. I wanted to do it where effectively I was leading it. And I met, I was introduced to Sonali DeRiker, who's now at Excel. And she had actually been really interested in the ticketing space. Um, and we started talking about it together. And um, then she brought Fred Destan in and the three of us talked about it a little bit. And, you know, I think they had an idea to want to do something in this space. I came along, met them, and refined the idea. And, you know, within about 30 days, they agreed to, uh, Atlas at the time agreed to back the business. So that was literally on the tail end of a conversation, early days with, with some good friends that, that backed you early. Yeah. And so day one, you yeah. have the money. Yep. What was the first ticket you sold? The first ticket that we sold was uh, a George, two George Michael tickets. And we, so the hard part was, there's a lot of hard parts. When we were trying to get the business, the site live to sell tickets, we couldn't get anyone to process our credit cards because ticket sales was so connected with fraud on the internet. We literally couldn't get anyone to do it. So we actually turned the site on live without a credit card processor on the back end. And we, like on the day we went live, PayPal said they would do it. They agreed, but it was going to take us a few days to do it. And they gave us like the online console, right? And so I think we turned the site on on a Friday and I was at a comedy club on a Saturday, on that Saturday night and an order came in. And we just like captured the credit card information, but didn't process it. In order came in for the George Michael tickets. And I literally walked out of the comedy club, called the guy on the phone and said, hey, we had a problem with your card. Can you give me the number of the phone? Took his number over the phone, punched it into PayPal and processed the order that way. Nice. Yeah. Hustling. Always be hustling, huh? Yeah, always be hustling. And so from, from that first transaction to the point you were dealing with more than you could process as one man. What was, what, how, what was the time frame? So really, so this is a really fascinating experience. Again, another one that, that stuck with me. We had a team of, I don't know, 12 or 13 people at that point, maybe a month after launch. And we had been selling like 15, 20 orders a day, right? Not a huge amount. Kind of just trying to figure out how to make this thing work. And about a month in, and the other thing was that the team we had hired, like I, I liked them, thought they were great, but the majority of them were kind of like, this seems like a good idea, not sure, you know, they're like paying me, so I'll come here and I'll do this, there may be some equity involved, that's great, but didn't really have like buy-in as a team. And about a month in, there was a Friday morning on sale for Take That. And literally we had sold like, 15 to 20 orders per day for any of the days up to that. And before noon, we did 400 orders. And I just kind of stepped back and I looked around the room and it was literally like the penny dropped in everyone's head and they thought, shit, this is actually going to work. And that was like the moment where the team came together and realized that there's something here that we can build. And from, from that point, how much time before then and the next fundraise? Uh, so that would have been like... Uh, it was like two months to the next fundraise. Two months. And walk us through that next fundraise. So the first one was on the tail end of obviously Fred and Sonali, friends, believing in the idea. It sounds like you had some early traction, of course, with, with this example. But was the next fundraise, because we're now talking kind of in that 
funny phrase of, of the European venture scene yeah. where there were a few funds. Yeah. Walk us through what that experience was like. What were the key questions, key fears, and then how hard or easy was it to raise? So the, the Series A, because seed didn't exist at the time. Yeah. Here anyways, um, that Atlas did was $3 million, and that was on a PowerPoint. We then took that, launched, went live, uh, and about eight months later did the Series B, which Mangrove led. And then News Corp came in, and they wanted to lead the Series B. And at the time, you know, News Corp owned MySpace. And they're like, hey, we're going to put you all over MySpace, put you all over the sun, sky, it's going to be awesome. And we got within days of doing that deal, and I backed out. Um, and I was told at the time I would never do business with News Corp again. And, and why'd you back out? So I got, for a couple of reasons, um, they signed a deal with eBay, a global deal with eBay. And I said, what's that about? And they said, oh, it doesn't involve ticketing. Don't worry about it. I'm like, well, it's eBay. Of course it involves ticketing. And then they said, um, by the way, we're going to sign a deal with Ticketmaster, but we're going to carve out the resale business in Europe. And I said, are you joking? Right? Like, I may have been born yesterday, but I stayed up all night. I've kind of got a clue. So they said, hey, look, we really want to do this deal. I'll tell you what, tomorrow we're going to fly you to LA and you're going to sit down with the MySpace team and they're going to tell you how important your business is to them. And they literally flew me to LA the next day and I sat with Krista Wolf and his team and, and he looked across the table at me and he said, love your business, but my product calendar is like 13 months backlogged. So sometime in the middle of next year, we'll probably do an integration. And I just turned to the guy's News Corp and I was like, look, this is not going to work. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. So we were like totally out of money. We had two broken funding processes in the Series B. Fortunately, Atlas said, we'll do a bridge. Right? Believe in the business. Another thing I will tell you is before we had talked to either Benchmark or News Corp, Mangrove had given us a term sheet, which I had turned down at the price I had asked for at the terms I had asked for. And so kind of a little bit hat in hand, I called up Mark Toulouse at Mangrove and I was just straight with him. And I said, look, I, you know, I turned you away. I went to someone else. It didn't work out. Are you still interested? And Mark said, you know, if I was interested 45 days ago, it would be irrational for me not to be interested today. And they went ahead and proceeded with the deal on the same terms. You know, you could have screwed me over completely, mm. but uh, I give him a lot of credit for that. No, that is a very, very noteworthy commitment, really. So if we jump into the scaling of a company and, and maybe come back to some of the elements around the financing, because I know that there's there's two tracks, right? Financing a company and scaling a company from an HR point of view. I want to touch briefly a little bit on some of the HR points. Um, one thing that has come up more and more is this idea of a hard versus soft CEO. And I think that it's it's such a complex issue about how to manage and set culture in a company. And there are role models out there like Steve Jobs and you know the, some of the harder style sort of authoritarian, authoritarian type uh, CEOs. And then there's the ones that you kind of are more inclusive or, or, or more democratic. And, and, and there's this polarity. In your experience in startup land, what... What's the style or how is it that a founder can come to know and, and feel confident about their style and how to grow a company without, you know, at the same time trying to always compare themselves to how such and such founder is, is running their company and such and such founder has a relationship with their investors? It's a really tough point. Um, I think it comes back to kind of self-knowledge because you have to be authentic to who you are as a founder, as a leader. And some people by style are much more authoritarian and some people by style are much more inclusive. And so you have to have the confidence that who you are has to come through and that you don't have to create a mask of like what a leader should look like in your mind or someone else's mind mm. of what that should be. That's, that's like this false edifice that ultimately will not be successful because you're not being true to who you are. And people see through that. And honesty and integrity and leadership is incredibly important. 
to build anything long lasting. So, and it's hard, right? If you're 28, 30, even 35 years old as a founder to have real self-knowledge, like a lot of us don't have that at that point in life. Like we don't have the toolkit yeah. to really know who we are. I think that comes to some people earlier and some people later, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, you know, my advice would be if you're in that situation, seek out people who can help you answer those questions, whether that's coaching, therapy, whatever you want to call it, friends, clergy, however you do it, so that your true essence is what's coming out as a leader. Mm. And by the way, the other thing is, like that will change over your life as well as you change. Mm. I was much more authoritarian younger, earlier in my career than I am today, partly because I've changed and partly because I see what works differently with you know, my, with myself, with different groups of people, who I want to be. Yeah. You, you bring up, a, you know, some really interesting points about knowing oneself. And I guess in its truest form, once you know your strengths and weaknesses and you, you've set up the organization around not trying to be somebody you're not, you will also inevitably have holes. And those holes are sometimes holes you hire for. And those holes might be everything from financial holes you might have, like a CFO, or it might be uh, certain other roles which a COO can fill. Maybe you can walk us through, I know that, see, we've got to have quite a number of employees, but maybe you can walk us through how you hired the key hires of your C-suite. And did you do that on the basis of self-awareness and what you knew you needed because you couldn't? Or was it because there was attributes about the company that needed that, and therefore it was mostly about plugging the needs of the company, not necessarily you, or both, and just feel free to elaborate. Yeah. So in the early days, there's really three things that mattered for that business, right? It was tech, product, and the commercial side, right? Getting tickets, selling tickets. So those were really four key roles that I hired right at the very beginning. Three of the first four hires were three of those roles. So CTO, first hire, head of marketing, second hire, head of product, third hire, and head of sales, which was supply, was probably like the sixth or seventh. And that was really about how do you build the core of what this should be, right? Mm. And that got us, I think we were 30-some people before we had somebody full-time HR, thinking about culture, thinking about what the organization should look like. Mm. And then the next wave was CFO and COO. And that was two years in. And I think it was probably the right time for the CFO. Actually, I could have hired a CFO a little earlier. Historically for me, that's been a blind spot. It was an area that I didn't want to focus on. I had an aversion to, and much to my detriment, detriment of the company. And so I probably could have had a CFO in earlier. The people who I tended to hire in finance roles were not as strong as they should have been. I had a couple of great hires at Match, but a couple of bad hires as well. Early hire at SeatWave was not good. Second hire at SeatWave was not great. Third hire was super. And so, you know, my advice would be that once you understand, like, if there's an area that, as a founder, if you think about your day and how you're spending your time, if there's an important area where you realize, like, I'm not spending any time there, you really need to think about having somebody super strong. So let's play with that a little bit more. And and I know that there's a couple of stories about CFOs yeah. and Seatway that you might want to share or not. But for a founder whose strength is not the role of a CFO, how does one know when one needs is a controller or an accountant versus explicitly a CFO? And then... Maybe if you can share any stories that, yeah. that sort of highlighted the, the choices when they were wrong. So I think in pretty much in any business where you're trading or you've got cash coming in and out at all, like you want to have somebody at a controller level as soon as you've got like a decent amount of cash that you have to pay attention to. And so that's got to be somebody who, you know, is a qualified accountant, has some experience in similar type of environment probably has been an environment where they've worked 
as the sole finance person as well. And again, that's today I look at it like that has to be an early hire. I think the hard part is if you don't have, as a founder, if you don't have an affinity for it, how do you find the right person? You know, like search is not going to help you, external search, because like their incentive is not to find the most qualified person. Their incentive is for you to hire somebody so that they can get their fee. So if you have investors, if you have advisors around you, reach out and find somebody who has hired controllers, hired CFOs, who understands the questions to ask. Because like, I didn't even know what questions to ask. That advice is out there and you have to go and get it. Then, you know, the CFO question, I think, is different. And, you know, we've inflated titles, right? But CFO is somebody who, you know, is not only thinking about what cash is coming and going out. There's compliance, there's regulatory issues, there's strategy questions around the business. There's capital allocation questions around the business. There's fundraising questions around the business. So to me, a CFO is incorporating all of those activities. You know, in, in the case of SeatWave, we ended up hiring a CFO who had not been an accountant, who had come from the commercial side. And we paired them with a controller who was not a strong controller. And so it's not a great combination. Mm. Um, so my advice is, again, I don't think it's inherently wrong to hire a CFO who isn't a qualified accountant, as long as they're paired with a super strong controller and finance team. And they understand what questions to ask as well. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I've seen people come from outside of, you know, accounting to become CFOs and are great at it because they've been close enough to it or they've been in capital markets and they understand big chunks of it and they learn very quickly. But again, I think you've really got to boil down. Like if, if you're going to hire a CFO who's not coming from the accounting side, you want to understand what qualities you need in that person, what they need to know already, and how are they going to get the information that they don't have. Mm -hmm. And again, that's where you have to go outside your shop maybe to get somebody to help you with it. Mm -hmm. If you look at most startups and their journeys, there's almost always a point where there's a cash crunch where... Or, the, or several. Or several, where the founder finds mm -hmm. themselves in a situation that they could potentially go into administration mm -hmm. or come out the other end swinging. Did that ever happen to you guys at SeatWave? Yeah, several times. I think the one that, you know, is probably the most dramatic was um, I came into the office one morning, one Friday morning. It's always on a Friday. And CFO and controller were sitting in my office. And they explained to me that the controller had made a mistake in accounts payable aging. And the, the result of it was that, you know, we, we owed a million euros of accounts payable more than we had thought we had owed the day before. And I looked at, you know, they had a one pager in front of me and I looked at it and I said, well, I think we're, we're kind of upside down right now. And neither one of them questioned me. And so I asked them a few questions, excused them from my office, got on the phone and called and my board members. And I got a great bit of advice from Simon Clark, who was at Fidelity at the time. And he said, look, I know this feels like the end of the world. Because I was thinking, like, we have to call in the administrators, right? Like, this is it. He said, I know this feels like the end of the world. Nothing is going to happen between now and Monday that's going to change this. Don't do anything today. Go home. Take the weekend. Clear your head. Let's call a board meeting for Monday and we'll sit around the table and we'll figure out what we need to figure out. And, you know, it just, it kind of stopped me in my tracks because my mind was racing like, this has to be solved right now. Like we have no money. We're, you know, this is over. And it just stopped me in my tracks to say, take a breath. I remember he said to me, like, sometimes doing nothing is the right thing. And he was right. Just, you know, kind of went through the day, did what I needed to do that day, went home for the weekend. We had a board call on Monday, ended up having, you know, putting together a rescue package. I mean, the, the whole thing ended up being, you know, um, tough on the company, obviously, but we were able to get through it and save the business by taking a little bit of time 
just to have our thoughts and be clear about what we needed to do rather than just plowing into, we have to solve this immediately. Yeah, no, that's very good advice, um, especially for a lot of people who, you know, when something goes wrong, it, it panic sets in. Particularly as a founder where, A, everything's on you, you mm-hmm. feel like. B, your natural reaction, well, my natural reaction would be, it's a problem, have to solve it. Like, I'm a problem-solving machine as a job. Like, that's all I do, right, is solve problems. So here's the next one. I got to solve this one. To just, like, hit pause mm. and just reflect for a little bit mm. was invaluable. One of the themes that has come up recently, maybe two, three years ago, is this idea of radical transparency. Where do you feel about something like this that uh, is, is so critical? And, and there's, like, tons of things that happen at the founder level that could potentially tank a company at any given day. How much do you see that there is value in, in oversharing versus undersharing versus right sharing? So I think there's been a ton of talk about radical transparency. In reality, I suspect there's less of it than people talk about. I think the experience I've had with people who are operating that way, like there's always stuff that's not totally transparent at some level. And so I think it's about expectation setting and how you then deliver on expectations. Like if you say this is radical transparency, then like you have to walk the walk 100% because if it turns out that you're not, like the whole house cards falls in, number one. Number two, look, maybe people are more sophisticated than I wanna give them credit for, But I also think like there's a lot of stuff that goes on inside a company that a lot of people don't understand, right? So my marketing team might not understand what the engineering team is doing. Members of the team might not understand what a financial instrument might be. And so the question is like, do you want to be totally transparent about everything to the point where people get focused on stuff that like isn't their job effectively and takes them away from what they need to do day to day. I would say I don't want to do that. I've always tried to be transparent with the team to say on like the big questions, right? We have this much cash, which equals this many months. And here are the milestones we need to hit in order to get to the next step in this company. Mm. If you have questions beyond that, I'm happy to answer them. And You know, I think there are certain key areas where you have to bring people along. So, you know, one great example is anytime you have a senior leadership team, like doing a way day, it seems like everybody who isn't on that day thinks the team's getting together to figure out who to fire, (laughs) right? Like in the absence of information, we all tend to indulge our worst fantasies, right? So in those situations, how do you deal with that? Well, you know what? We used to invite like two junior members of the team to the away days to give them an opportunity in that environment and take the message back to the rest of the team. Actually, they're not talking about who to fire. They're talking about like, how do we change this industry in the next 180 days? So I think there are key points of leverage where you can introduce transparency that go a long way towards delivering it. But I just don't sign up to the like 100% Radical transparency. Yeah. What are the key employee headcount inflection points in your mind? Like 5, 10, 20, 15, 20. And, and what are the things that radically change for you when those steps get hit? I think it's 30, 150, 300, and 900. Um, I don't have a ton of experience beyond that. Yeah. So, you know, up until 30, it kind of feels like you're all in a bunker together and you're building something and it's all pure. Like we're just heads down together and in this thing beyond 30, you start to have like, Oh, you know, somebody's on holiday for a while or like two or three people at the same time. So there's some detachment physically. You start to have more specialization division so that like you've got a group working on one thing and a group working on another thing and there's not as much we're building one thing together. And so that's a point at which communication across the group becomes formal communication becomes more important, right? When you're kind of 30 and under, it can be very informal. Yeah. 
Beyond that, you have to think about like what are the tools that we use to make sure that everybody understands what we're doing, how to feed back into it, what are the critical milestones. And there's tons of different ways of doing that. 150 is kind of like the max number of people that you can fit into one space in a way. And so beyond that, there's like, you know, the annex facility in the suburbs or the second location or, you know, the offsite team. And so then you have to manage physical dislocation um, if you're not a distributed organization to start with. Yeah. Presuming that. And, you know, even in that, like, even if you've got 10 people and you've got five in one room and five in another it immediately becomes the bastards in the other room. It's an amazing characteristic of human behavior that the minute you put any kind of barrier up, and it can be like like a three-foot divider between two sets of desks, like there creates this mental division as well. Tribes. Tribes, right? Like we just are, it's in our DNA. So the question is like, how do you keep the barriers as low as possible all through, but 150 is, and it's kind of like the 150 is the number of people you can remember, right? And all these things. Um, and then 900 is the number where people begin to say, like, I don't even know what's going on in this company anymore. There's like 50 new people who I haven't met yet. It starts to feel like a big, big company. Yeah. And so I think each of those requires different ways of trying to think about how do you maintain communication, focus, alignment, alignment, the most important thing mm-hmm. across what you're trying to do. What, how many headcount did you have when you hired the CEO? We're about 80. 80. Yeah, okay. so just under 90. Yeah. And what, what was the main drive behind the CEO? Because, I mean, it's not clear that all companies hire a CEO for the role that people sometimes stereotype CEOs to do. So I'm just curious as to what it is that you thought the CEO was supposed to do and what, what they did for you. So what my hope was, was really around customer experience. So at that point, we had, you know, literally thousands of people a day going into hundreds of different events. Mm. And it was a wide variety of um, the quality of experience for those customers. Mm. For some of it was great, for some of it was terrible. Mm-hmm. And I knew for us to be successful long term, like it had to be great for at least 98, 99% mm-hmm. of those customers. And so I wanted to bring somebody in who could focus entirely on like what do we need to do mm-hmm. to deliver a great experience to customers so that they have total confidence in the service we provide. Mm-hmm. Because we knew that it, once people had a great first experience, there'd be a second, third, fourth, fifth. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a way, I would maybe describe that as a meta product manager. Maybe. Um, but, you know, in, in that business, it was, you know, really everything from like when you started the checkout experience online mm-hmm. through like the day after the event mm-hmm. in a way or when you're walking out of the venue. And in many cases, that's like a nine-month period, 10, 12-month period. And in many cases, that might be a 12-month period, but you not, might not get the tickets until like two weeks before that event. Yeah. So it's managing all of the anxiety and expectation through all of that. Yeah. Anyways, that was the idea. I think we made a ton of progress in that area. Ultimately, you know, it turned out that that was probably not a COO, to your point. Right. But we made a ton of progress in that area. Anyways, and I think by bringing in a COO tasked with that, we elevated within the company the importance of that customer experience. Yeah, fair enough. And that's critical for for not having a disjointed customer experience. But, you know, if we, we, you know, there's so much to touch within Seaway that honestly we could be here for hours and probably crack some beers open and and continue. But I want to see if we can distill down some of the core elements. Because I know that since you've, you know, C-Wave, um, you've been involved as an advisor for VC funds and you've started a couple of other companies and you've also helped um, finance some of them. And so there's, there's been an experience to leverage the cumulative background that you have. When you start working with a new company, what are the 
from you know from all these lessons you've learned over the years, what are the first three things you put into motion with a new company you're working with? So I would go back to the point I made earlier about alignment. You know, what what is it that you need to deliver like now? And then once you deliver it, like where do you want to go from there? Hmm. You know, a lot of companies who I talk to now have, you know, like here's the playing field that we're operating in. Well, in order to be successful, my experience has been, at least early on, you have to shrink the problem you're trying to solve to be as narrow as possible, right? Like, let's just shrink this down as much as we possibly can. And how do we deliver successfully on this very narrow problem solution set? Now, a lot of founders come in and they think, hey, I'm going to build the be-all, end-all in V1. And that's just not realistic. Like, no company does that. And any company that tries to do that and says, I'm going to raise enough money to do it so I can deliver on V1, like, we know that's a disaster. And so... How do you align on, so first, how do you align on the thing that is going to be really important for you to deliver, that you can deliver, and acts as a proof point for what you want to do next? That, to me, is the most important element of it. So getting it into kind of a team to say, yes, this is it. Here are the boundaries. Beyond these boundaries, we're not delivering now. We're not building now. We're going to deliver this and then go to the next thing. Hmm. And in terms of um, looking at it from a metrics or from a KPIs or anything like that, is there any uh, structure that you like to, to set up early on? So in that first instance, you're kind of going from zero to one, hmm. right? And so you almost don't know what the metrics are that you want to measure. I mean, you might have an idea if you've been through it before, but you kind of want to see it in action and then design what you want to track once you see it in action. Hmm. Now, my experience has been that most of us create a set of metrics that are far more broad, again, than are useful or that we can have an ability to successfully track. So I think, again, most businesses, I would say almost every business that I've been around, there's probably three KPIs that you can measure the health of the business on that actually can tell you about whether it's healthy or not and are not kind of output or vanity KPIs. So yeah, definitely, definitely some, give it some time to gestate, to bubble up the things that run it and then focus those into three core ones rather than having a bunch of vanity ones, which can sometimes distract the, yeah. the team. Yeah. Cool. Um, and well, then each team within the team, if they need to create their own, that's cool. But as a business, yeah. like headline, this is the North Star. Yeah. We've covered so much ground, Joe, and, and I feel like there's so much more I'd love to ask you. But I, I'm, I'm mindful that, you know, we, we, we might even have to have a second episode, you know, continue that. But, you know, if, if we jump a little bit about you as a person today, yeah. um, what do you feel you still have left to conquer? You know, you've, you've done so much. Is there one last type of thing you'd like to do. It doesn't have to be work-related. It could be you want to climb Mount Everest. Um, I hope it's not one, first of all. So, like, I still love building companies. I still love trying to solve consumer problems. I think the harder part where I am now is really understanding, like, what are the opportunities that I want to spend time on? And because time is the thing that becomes far more important than anything else. Yeah. So... You know, there's, there's kind of a few areas that I've kind of been getting interested in or doing research, trying to understand while I'm helping founders with their businesses and then trying to see, you know, if it's a situation where I would start something again or if there's an existing business doing something interesting that I can help out, that I would go and do it. But I don't, I mean, it's interesting. I don't feel like I have anything to prove to anyone mm. Maybe myself that I can still do it, um, but at this point, it's more like I want to figure out how to do stuff that I'm interested in, how I can help other people, how I can pass along what I've learned, mm. um, or you know, help them figure stuff out on their own. Well, I mean, I sure definitely benefited from hearing uh, a lot of these stories and, and advice, and for sure. 
if founders want to get a hold of you and, and maybe get some further thoughts or maybe some further ideas on, on how they can tackle their own problems, what would be the best way for them to maybe reach out? Best way to reach out is probably um, Twitter, Cohen underscore goes underscore ham, H-A-M. <laughs> What's the story behind that? Um, so there's a song on uh, on Watch the Throne, Yeah, um, Kanye and Jay-Z going ham. Oh, okay. I love it. Love it. Well, there you go, guys. There you have it. Um, Thanks for joining us, Joe. It's been an amazing experience having you here and sharing your story. Thanks, Carlos. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.